week's SACPA session. My name is Sage Strobel, and it is my pleasure to welcome you here today as today's moderator. This meeting will consist of three parts of 25 to 30 minutes each, our presentation, lunch, and a question period, and we'll finish around 1.30 this afternoon. Before we can begin, there are a couple of housekeeping details I'd like to remind you of. To start, please know that this session is being recorded. Also, please remember to, to turn off your cell phones and any other noise-making devices so that all audience members may relax and enjoy today's presentation. Finally, the cost for your lunch is $11, which you can deposit on the designated baskets. We ask that each table select someone to tally up the total amount prior to the baskets being collected before lunch. Thanks so much for your patience and cooperation in attending to these details. Without further ado, I would like to introduce the author of Undoing Border Imperialism and co-founder of the Migrant Justice, Justice Group, No One is Illegal. Please give a warm welcome to Harsha Walia. Hi everyone, how are you? Good, good, thank you. It's wonderful to see your beautiful faces. Um, I'd like to start by acknowledging that I and we are here on uh, Blackfoot territory and I wanna give my thanks to Blackfoot people for having us here on this land. Um, and also to the organizers and for everyone that's been involved in, in hosting me over the past 24 hours. Um, so my uh, talk today is focused on, as you probably know, on uh, the issue of Canadian immigration and refugee policy. And so um, I did a talk yesterday that was more conceptual and trying to think through the role of borders and immigration kind of from a global perspective. And what I want to uh, talk about today and focus on today is what that looks like in Canada, right? What are some of the very specific policies that are operating in Canada today, um, particularly ones that are having a detrimental impact on immigrants and refugees? And, you know, all this to say um, that I think this is a really important time to be talking about Canadian immigration and refugee policy for a range of reasons. Um, you know, yesterday, as we know, was the apology for the Kamagatamaru. Justin Trudeau did a state apology for the Kamagatamaru. The Kamagatamaru was the boat, the ship that came onto the west coast of Canada over 100 years ago, carrying 376 passengers from India. Um, and as people know, what happened, uh, what transpired during the Kamagatamaru was all 376 passengers were disallowed from embarking uh, on Canadian soil, despite being British subjects, right? So this was actually the key uh, kind of uh, leverage that the passengers were using when they landed on Canadian soil to say that actually we are British subjects and technically we're supposed to be able to travel and migrate within the Dominion, but they were disallowed uh, to disembark. And so yesterday was the apology for the, for the Kamagatamaru. And so, you know, over a hundred years later, it gives us um, a lot of, I think, necessary pause and reflection to think through whether that apology is meaningful or not, right? Because in order for an apology to be meaningful, we don't just apologize, we actually have to ensure that we're not replicating the same kinds of policies 100 years later. Um, and so I would argue that in many ways, perhaps not as directly or overtly, we are in fact replicating some of, uh, some of not many of the historic policies that we are apologizing for. 
Um, the other reason that I think it's really critical right now to, to talk about immigration and refugee policy is because it's in the news a lot, right? The global refugee crisis is constantly in the news, less so the past few months, but certainly, you know, October, November, December of last year. Um, the issue, particularly of S the Syrian refugee crisis, was in the front page media. Uh, the the death, the completely avoidable death of toddler Alan Kurdi, uh, which was on the front page news, and of course Canada's connection to it, because as we know at the time, uh, Prime Minister Stephen Harper and the federal conservatives had disallowed um, Alan Kurdi's um, family and his uncle from being sponsored into Canada. And so the refugees welcome movement focused on Syrian refugees has really been in the news. Um, and I think, you know, in some ways that has um, really brought forward some of the incredible generosity and benevolence of people in our communities. People have been rushing to sponsor refugees, but at the same time, it's really kind of invisibilized in ongoing exclusionary ways in which refugee policy works. So it's, it's hidden as much as it's magnified. And so just to contextualize Canadian immigration policy, I'm not going to talk about the whole history of Canadian immigration policy. I'm going to assume that people know uh, some of its kind of very horrendous and, and racist um, history. You know, the Kamagatamaru being one of them that I mentioned. We also have the Chinese head tax, where we saw Chinese um, men predominantly being brought in to work on the, on the railroads. And we know that for approximately every one to three kilometer of track that was laid, one Chinese migrant laborer died right and after the railroad was built we had the imposition of the Chinese head tax as well as the Chinese Exclusion Act and the Chinese Exclusion Act essentially barred all Chinese people from entering into Canada so basically when their labor was no longer needed when the labor that they were exploited for was no longer needed they were completely barred from Canada um, the one thing that I want to emphasize and mention about the Chinese Exclusion Act is that it was actually passed on Canada Day. <laughs> and so for many people in the Chinese Canadian community, you know, while Canadians, many Canadians celebrate Canada Day, of course, a lot of indigenous people are not celebrating Canada Day, but also the Chinese Canadian community actually calls it Humiliation Day. And I think it's important to raise that because when we're talking about Canada, we have to realize that many people have different relationships to Canada. And something as symbolic as Canada Day means completely different things to different people based on these living legacies of colonization and racism that we really need to be attuned to. Um, of course, we also have uh, and had the, the Japanese-Canadian internment. Um, and this was, you know, when all Japanese Canadians were de declared enemy alien simply by virtue of the fact that they were Japanese of Japanese heritage, right? And that is such a salient example of how racial profiling works by deciding that someone by virtue of their racial identity are, are going to be stereotyped. Um, you know, most infamously, we had Ian McKinsey, an MP in British Columbia, saying, quote, no Japs from the Rockies to the seas, right? And while we may not have that kind of overt racism, you know, the post 9-11 climate has reproduced some of the very same policies as the Japanese Canadian internment. So the Japanese Canadian internment was justified again by basically saying or assuming that all Japanese Canadians were enemy aliens because they happen to be of Japanese heritage. And in the post 9-11 climate, we have the same kind of justification where Muslims and anyone assumed to be Muslim, South Asian, Sikh, Arab, by virtue of being Muslim, South Asian, Sikh, Arab and more 
more are presumed to be terrorists, right? So our entire kind of anti-terror legislation that has come about in the post 9-11 climate is based on literally, you know, the false assumption, the racist assumption that all Muslims are terrorists and we all need to protect ourselves from all Muslims, right? And so that same kind of racial logic operates from the Japanese-Canadian internment through till today in the post 9-11 climate. Um, I'm not going to focus a whole lot. I just wanted to mention that because I'm not going to focus a whole lot on, on anti-terrorism uh, legislation or on security legislation. Um, it's obviously connected, but I think people are much more aware, um, particularly in the past few years, of the kinds of bills that have been passed, like Bill C-51, other kinds of violations of privacy and civil liberties. And so I'm going to explicitly focus on immigration and refugee policy, but just wanting to frame it all and saying, you know, this is contextualized in many different aspects of policy within Canada today. So what I want to talk about um, is four key things. Refugee policy, the policy of detention and deportation in Canada, um, generally what's happening with immigrants and immigration in Canada, and the temporary foreign worker program. So I'm going to focus on those four areas of policy all in like 20 minutes. So it's going to be a bit of a cursory overview, and I'm, I'm happy to answer questions after. Um, so just so people know what's been happening with immigration and refugee policy, since 2002, there's actually been 111, at least 111 new immigration policies passed since 2002. This stands in comparison to 19 immigration policy changes that were brought about from 1867 to 2001. So 19 compared to 1,000, or sorry, to 19 compared to 111. A vast majority of these 111 new policies, you know, I wouldn't blame you if you don't know about <laughs> even half of them. And that's because most of them have not actually been passed as legislation in Parliament. Most of them have been passed as ministerial directives. And ministerial directives, as we know, don't actually require parliamentary procedure to pass. They're just passed within departments. And so it's important to realize that one of the departments that actually has accrued the most ministerial power is actually the citizenship of immigration in Canada. That department has more more ministerial power than almost any other department in Canada when it comes to the power to pass through ministerial directive. Um, citizenship and Immigration Canada is also coincidentally um, the one department in Canada that actually turns a profit from its users. So there is no other department in Canada that's able to claim a profit, for, for example, through application fees. CIC is the only department in Canada that can turn a profit from those who use the services of that department. And so it's important to keep that in mind when we're talking about, you know, how is the Canadian economy partly being subsidized is partly through people trying to access this departmental gov this um, government department. And there's so many other ways in which the Canadian economy is subsidized through immigrants and refugees. But that's just, that's one in particular. Um, so it's moving on to talking about uh, the first kind of policy category that I want to talk about, which is uh, refugees. And again, you know, refugees um, uh, and focusing on refugees is particularly important right now because we're in a climate where we're being led to believe, and I'm going to emphasize being led to believe, that Canada is, is very generous towards refugees because of the fact that every day in the news there's, you know, uh, Justin Trudeau hugging a Syrian refugee baby. Um, but, you know, to contextualize this in a global picture for a second is, you know, in the world right now, there's one billion migrants 
59.5 million people the United Nations reported as refugees in the past year. And of those 59.5 million people who are uh, UN refugees or are recorded by the UN as refugees, over 85 to 90% of refugees actually are internally displaced or are displaced to countries in the global south. So countries like Turkey, countries like Iran, countries like Pakistan are actually home to a, last, a vast majority of the world's population. Countries like Somalia, countries like Kenya, right? So these are countries that are actually home to the world's refugee population. It's not the global north or the so-called or the west. Um, Canada it actually accepts less than 0.01% of the world's refugee population. Less than 0.01% of the world's refugee population. So that's really important to keep in mind when we're talking about welcoming and generosity. And countries like Turkey and Pakistan, at, you know, within the pa at different times in the past decade, actually more than 50% of the population of those countries at different times have actually been refugee populations, right? So a vast amount of welcoming in the global south or forced welcoming, right? Because that's where most refugees travel to is just the neighboring country. Um, so that's the reality of, uh, of, the, of the context of welcoming refugees in Canada. And also important to note that, you know, while there's been this emphasis on welcoming Syrian refugees, what that's actually meant is not that Canada's necessarily accepting more refugees into Canada. It actually means that refugees that were otherwise waiting to come to Canada actually now have to wait longer. So when there's been an emphasis on welcoming Syrian refugees, unfortunately what it's done is it's just displaced other refugees, particularly from parts of Eastern and South Africa who often tend to wait the longest, um, have to just wait longer. So now their wait time is expected at four to five years. So we're not welcoming more refugees. We're basically maintaining with you know some slight increases the so-called annual targets that Canada has of welcoming refugees. Um, the other point that I want to make about refugees particularly relates to sponsorship because I know a lot of communities have spent a lot of time and resources into private sponsorship of refugees, right? That's one of the key ways in which we're told Canadians can help is to sponsor refugees. Um, and this is absolutely true, right? Again, it's an immense outpouring of generosity when people are, are, are thinking about refugees and want to welcome refugees. But two things that I think are important to, um, to know about the private sponsorship of refugees, the, PC, the PSR program and the group of five sponsorships, is with minor exceptions, um, generally, a private sponsored refugee does not add to the quota of government sponsored refugees. So typically, there's a total quota of refugees that the government will, uh, will accept, particularly when it comes to sponsored refugees. And privately sponsored refugees, if you privately sponsor a refugee, it basically means the government is off the hook for a refugee. Right? So we're not actually, again, increasing our welcome. We're, more than anything, allowing the government to be off the hook. And this is an important point because, as we know, privately sponsored refugees means that government does not have to subsidize for things like housing. Right? So it means that communities basically are on the hook for housing and that it, it's essentially a form of outsourcing and privatizing the refugee system. Right by saying we're going to off we're going to outsource um, and offload this government responsibility, the state responsibility onto citizens and residents. So um, I think that's an important thing to know about the private sponsorship um, program. I'm not trying to dissuade people from it, but I think it's important to know that in some ways it often actually benefits the government when we're privately sponsoring refugees. Um, the other key aspects of Canada's refugee program. 
uh, that people should know about is, um, you know, this was often in the news last year, which is that under the previous government, uh, refugees were actually um, had their interim federal health completely eliminated. So that meant that most refugees and refugee claimants were not able to access basic and or emergency health care. So that included health care for things like diabetes, for things like cancer treatments, things like dialysis, right? So um, under the guise and really the kind of austerity logic, right, where we're pitted against each other, where we're told that refugees and immigrants are draining public services, that there isn't enough in the public purse, even though that we know there's actually enough in the public purse it's just being spent on the wrong priorities right like subsidies to oil companies we're told that there isn't enough money for health care and refugees were one of the first amongst others right seniors being others um, who were affected by some of these cuts to health care and the privatization of health care where refugees were denied basic health care access um, and you know one of one of the women that I was working with her name was Agnes her father um, actually died in Canada as a result of lack of access to cancer treatment when he was diagnosed with cancer. And so one of the things that she has consistently said is that the Canadian government killed my father. And he is someone who lived in Canada for over 35 years. He lived in Canada for 35 years. His wife is Canadian. His three children were Canadian. Agnes is Canadian, her younger sister's Canadian, her younger brother's Canadian. She goes to Simon Fraser University. You know, when I first met her, um, to be honest, I didn't actually think that, you know, she was struggling with immigration issues. She was, you know, for lack of a better word, a very normal teenager. Um, but she had, for the past five years, been fighting for her father to get access to permanent residency despite having lived in Canada for three decades, over three decades, and access to health care. And he died in 2014. He died in 2014. And the most disgusting part of this whole thing was that a month later, after he passed away, Canada granted him permanent residency on humanitarian and compassionate grounds. Right? It's disgusting. And, you know, she is just one of thousands of people whose stories we don't often hear about, partly because of the fear, partly because, you know, media doesn't cover these stories. Um, and partly because we really do live in separate worlds, right? There's some of us who have access to basic services and there's an entire underclass of people who don't have access to the basic public services that we all take for granted, but that are increasingly getting gutted. And so that's, you know, that's the reality of, of refugee policy in Canada. Connected to refugee policy is, you know, intricately connected to the issue of detention and deportation, right? So on the one hand, you know, again, we have this emphasis in state narrative of refugees welcome. But on the other hand, we have approximately 10,000 refugees that are detained in Canadian prisons every single year. And, you know, that includes children. Alpha Anawa is a three-year-old who was born in a Canadian prison. His mother is Gloria Nawa, who fled from Cameroon. She was pregnant in a Canadian prison in Ontario. He was born in a Canadian prison. He has not seen a single day of freedom in his life. His first words in prison were radio check. And radio check is the phrase that prison guards use when they're doing shift change. And those were his first words as a young Canadian child in a Canadian prison held under immigration detention. And Canada has actually been condemned at the, at the level of the United Nations for its detention policies. And it's actually been singled out as one of the rogue Western states. 
So, you know, oftentimes we think again of Canada when it comes to immigration as a beacon, but at the level of the United States, it's at the level of the United Nations, it's been explicitly pointed out as a rogue nation for one main reason, a number of reasons, but one main reason is that Canada is one of the only Western countries to practice indefinite detention when it comes to immigration detention. So immigration detention, just um, for a quick background, immigration detention is other than um, criminal, the criminal injustice system, it is the only area of law when someone can be incarcerated, right? Where you are physically incarcerated. But compared to the criminal injustice system, it is actually, there is no trial, there is no sentencing. It is um, a violation of immigration law is an, a violation of administrative law. It is literally the same as not paying your parking ticket. That is the body of law that it falls under, administrative law. So you can be jailed for a violation of administrative law for not having a trial with a judge and for not actually being sentenced and for not being charged with a specific offense. And so the grounds for detention, again, this is an administrative charge, is as arbitrary as you don't have proper documentations or an immigration authority, not a judge, but an immigration, a border official, decides that they think you're a flight risk. So if you express, and I've seen this happen so many times, where when somebody is told, you know, your refugee claim is denied, you're not going to be able to remain in Canada, and that person expresses fear, very real legitimate fear of going back to a place of persecution where then they are actually detained because they expressed fear, that's considered a flight risk, right? And so these are the kinds of arbitrary catch-22 situations that migrants are put in, 10,000 people a year and indefinitely detained. So you could be detained for two days, three days and deported, or you could be detained for 10 to 12 years and never know when you're going to be released. And that happens in Canada. And this is why this has been condemned at the level of the United Nations. And Alpha Nawa is not the only child that's detained in a Canadian prison. It's estimated that anywhere from 200 to 800 minors are detained as migrant detainees. Canada actually does not have a policy on the detention of minors because Canada says, the Canadian government says, we don't detain minors. They are quote unquote guests of their parents. So parents actually have the so-called choice of being incarcerated with their children or giving their kids up to welfare, right? So their kids end up in foster care. So it's not a real choice. Those kids are actually detained. Um, and that's the other reason that Canada has been condemned at the level of the United Nations. And just this past month, three people have died in immigration detention. One 24-year-old in Edmonton this past weekend. And so immigration detention is actually now going to be subject to a federal review. So uh, because of the number of deaths, because of this, um, you know, this condemnation at the level of the United Nations, Canada has now ordered, the current government has ordered a federal review into Canada Border Services Agency's practice because it is also the only law enforcement body to have no independent oversight. Um, but really, you know, independent oversight um, is so inadequate because again, when we look at the fact that there's such an immense power to detain, to arbitrarily detain without charge, without trial, without sentencing, oversight is not the core issue, right? The core issue is why do we have a body that was brought about only after 9-11, right? It's a direct result of post 9-11 paranoia and hysteria that we have this body in the first place that has such immense powers to detain people. Over 100,000 people at this point over the past decade have been detained 
um, in Canadian prisons. It's one of the fastest growing prison populations in this country, alongside Indigenous women who we've seen have experienced a 90% increase um, in, the, in the incarceration rate of Indigenous women, as well as a, um, an incredible increase of the population of, uh, of black inmates. Migrant detainees are one of the fastest growing prison populations as well. Um, the last uh, two things that I want to talk about is, um, the, last, the second last thing I want to talk about is this broad category of immigrants, right? So when we think of Canada, we often think of immigrants, of permanent residents who come to Canada as, you know, sponsored family members, um, as federal workers under, you know, what used to be the point system. So I don't know how many people know this, but the past government completely eliminated the federal skilled worker program. So the point system that has been kind of the benchmark of Canada for the past several decades no longer exists in Canada. 280,000 applications were completely eliminated in, in one false swoop. Um, and, you know, the skilled worker program was replaced by the, was not replaced because the temporary foreign worker program existed prior to that, but basically the TFW program was seen as filling um, labor needs. I'm going to come back to the TFW program. But coming back to the, the, the issue of immigration, so we have a complete elimination of the federal skilled worker program. We also have a decrease of 20 to 30% in the past 15 years of family sponsorships. So people being able to bring their parents and grandparents has been close, has decreased by 20 to 30%. And in particular, when it comes to parents and grandparents, that program has been completely revamped where now there's only 5,000, 2,000 to 5,000 applications that are, um, that are accepted every year. That doesn't mean those applications will get accepted. It just means that the government will accept 2,000 to 5,000 applications. After that, it's closed. So this past year, that quota was actually filled on January 8th, right? So it's, it's done for the year. And then the other parents and grandparents that are trying to come are told that they can come on what's called a super visa. And a super visa is basically a temporary permit where you have to buy private Canadian healthcare insurance. And I raise this as a key issue because a lot of people who work on healthcare policy don't know or realize that the privatization of Canadian healthcare, the canary for that right now is immigrant seniors. Immigrant seniors are the canary in the gold mine for the increasing privatization of healthcare. And the largest increase in private Canadian healthcare insurance right now is targeted towards immigrant seniors who are required to buy private healthcare insurance in order to come to Canada, right? And so the fact that this is happening really should be a concern for all of us, right? Because once immigrants are told you have to buy private Canadian healthcare insurance, eventually all of us are going to be told that to some degree or another, right? To a greater degree than we already are. Um, and so this is really a key issue when it comes to public policy is the privatization of healthcare and the intersection with immigration, as well as you know the elimination for refugees that I talked about earlier. Um, the, uh, the number of immigrants who are becoming citizens has completely reversed. So up until 2008, the number of immigrants who were able to become citizens were approximately 79%. But now citizenship is becoming much harder to get and much easier to lose, so that between the period of 2008 onwards, it was actually the complete opposite. 20, only 26% of immigrants became citizens in Canada. Right? So again, that popular idea of immigrants becoming citizens, of being able to bring their families, and you know, being able to live here in the long term with rights, 
um, is actually not true when we look at these kinds of statistics. And the last point that I want to make really drives that home, and that's the Temporary Foreign Worker Program. And the Temporary Foreign Worker Program has been central to how Canada has kind of resolved the crisis of immigration and labor in the Canadian context. And so the Temporary Foreign Worker Program has actually been around for decades. It's been around in the 50s, so for over 50 years. The Seasonal Agricultural Worker Program, which brings farm workers to Canada, is marking its 50-year anniversary this year. It's not a new program, but what is somewhat new is the fact that migrant workers currently make up the majority of immigration to Canada. So when we think of immigrants coming to Canada, the vast majority are not coming as permanent residents. The vast majority, approximately 300,000 people per year, are coming on temporary permits. And again, a vast majority of them are working in what's called the low-skilled, low-wage sector. And this is the ones that we hear about in the news, right? So in the service industry, in farm working industry, doing domestic work, doing retail work. These are, um, these are the kinds of labor pools that migrant workers fill. Migrant workers work some of the hardest work. Um, they're denied the right to unionize. They're denied access to basic health and safety standards. They're denied the right to permanent residency in most cases. And in most cases, they're um, subject to mass human rights violations. Identification confiscated. In the case of, for example, live-in caregiver workers who were predominantly Caribbean women uh, and now predominantly Filipino women who come to do domestic work in Canada. In British Columbia, in a survey, over 80% reported sexual violence violence and sexual harassment, right? So this is not an issue of one bad employer or two bad employers. This is about a program that is sanctioned by the Canadian government that actually allows for a pool of cheap indentured labor. You are tied to one employer. You're not allowed to leave your employer. If you raise any issues or concerns or violations of health or labor rights, you can be deported, right? So this is an, a pool that is deliberately kept vulnerable, that is deliberately kept precarious. Um, and this is so critical to understanding the ways in which the Canadian political economy has always historically required cheap labor, right? Again, going back to the Chinese head tax and those laborers, to now the TFW program, the Temporary Foreign Worker Program, a pool of indentured labor. Um, and so, you know, I've talked about all of this, so, you know, in the last few minutes, you know, what are some solutions, right? Like, what can we do in the face of all of this? So just going backwards, um, and again, you know, just to mention, as I said earlier, that detention is currently under federal review. The Temporary Foreign Worker Program is currently under federal review, so it's a really important time for people to raise their voices, tell your MPs, and get involved in these processes of federal reviews to demand just solutions, right? To demand just and humane and anti-racist um, and labor, you know, and, and, and um, solutions that enforce labor rights as well as migrant rights. So when it comes to the TFW, really quickly, um, it's really important to demand permanent residency for all workers, right? One of the demands of the migrant workers movement is that if we're good enough to work, we're good enough to stay, right? That's a really basic principle and that Temporary foreign workers should not be tied to one employer. That's indentureship, right? So status for all migrant workers, permanent residency upon arrival, and full rights to permanent residency and labor rights and the rights to unionize. Um, when it comes to detention, um, one of the demands of the End Immigration Detention Network is for an end to um, detaining migrant detainees in maximum security prisons. So a lot of migrant detainees are held in maximum security prisons. And the other demand is a simple one, which is actually, you know, um, upheld in Europe and in the United States, but not in Canada, which is that if a detainee 
cannot be held for more than 90 days. We cannot have arbitrary indefinite detention, right? Detainees should be released after no more than 90 days. And this is already a whole lot considering that they're not actually charged with anything in the first place, right? So that's um, a very key demand to um, when it comes to uh, detention. When it comes to refugees and immigrants, um, really to a complete overhaul in the system so that we're actually allowing refugees and immigrants to come on the basis of human rights and dignity, not whether people are serving our labor market needs, not whether people are a burden or not, right? So the fact that senior um, immigrants are told that they can't come to Canada because they're a drain on their healthcare system is a profoundly ableist, anti-senior kind of discourse that all seniors face, right? So we really need to be standing up for the idea that all human beings are worthy, whether or not they're able to produce or function in the wage economy or not, right? That single mothers have a right to immigrate with their children, whether or not they're able to, um, to work productively, so should seniors. And so really challenging the logic of immigration that in the Canadian context has always been about only allowing immigrants to come into Canada if we fulfill labor market needs, right? So I'm really challenging that kind of idea. Um, and so I want to end with a quote that I that I had yesterday, which was a quote by um, Eduardo Galeano. People may know Eduardo Galeano, the great, late, great Latin American poet and revolutionary. Um, and he said, the world was born yearning to be a home for everyone. The world was born yearning to be a home for everyone. And I think if we're able to have policies that are built on that concept of home for everyone, then we'll be able to see a much more just and humane immigration policy when it comes to Canada. Thank you.